Hello, welcome to Diving Into the Wreckage, uh, uh, Nationalism and its Discontents Part 2. Um, Sean and I have been talking about geopolitics and how everything is bad, uh, which, you know, I guess this is a perpetual theme of this show. We're always like, oh, this yeah. is going to be a miniseries and things will normalize and they never normalize and there's a thousand things to talk about. Yeah. But, um, we're, we were talking uh, before about uh, something very topical, has been for a couple of years, which is Russia, Ukraine. And for um, this episode, I've been reading uh, the selected writings, oh, as I drop it for people on camera, selected writings of Lenin on uh, national liberation, socialism, and uh, imperialism. Turns out Russia, Ukraine, very topical 110 years ago, too. Um, a lot of good topical stuff in here, but... Uh, I did this to try to kind of ground some of our discussion in classical theory, you know. Uh, but I've also been reading this book by uh, John Connolly uh, called Peoples into Nations, which is a more sort of liberal bourgeois uh, history of um, Eastern Europe and national formation starting in the 17th century, 18th century, and going all the way up through the fall of the USSR. So we're, uh, we're really in it now. Uh, Varn, you brought up, what was it, five thinkers last time who kind of outline a, a, a Marxist, various different Marxist theories of the nation. And we went yeah, I mean, we brought and, up what? We brought up like uh, Bennett Anderson and we brought up um, Otto Bauer and we brought up uh, Hobsbawm. Hobsbawm. I mean, Hobbs, well, Hobsbawm and Anderson do. I mean, Anderson's not. Strictly no. speaking, a Leninist arm. I'm not even sure he's a Marxist. He's just related to one. Yeah. Um, but they kind of try to develop this idea from Lenin's criterion and also from liberal criterions of what created national cultures and the national revolutions. And and Anderson in particular is, thinks that at least in the beginning that it's actually a progressive thing that it creates an administrative apparatus etc um Hobsbawm has his theories which are which are largely based on like invented traditions and all that and, and Hobsbawm seems to have a, a slightly less rosy view on nationalism but still kind of thinks it was necessary um fitting for somebody who was born in Cairo uh married somebody from the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh ended up living I think throughout the colonies and then ended up um, for World War II and Nazi reasons uh, living in the UK again. Um, somebody like that, I think, is bound to question whether nationalism itself is a progressive force or not. Certainly the 20th century makes us question this, which is why we're here today, because the 21st century um, seems to be riddled with a, a new type of nationalism, or at least the recrudescence of some of the nasty nationalisms, not the good progressive Wilsonian nationalisms that uh, we and Lenin could imagine from uh, around the World War One period, but uh, a sort of postmodern nationalism on the one hand, but also the return of like a a, a, fa a, a fascist ish. Uh, I mean, but, you know, you betray the you betray something, and when you say a good Wilsonian nationalism, because a Wilsonian hmm. nationalism is explicitly racialist. It is mm. yes, it's internationalist in a loose sense, but it's also fascist at home. Um, I, I, well, I, I, before I have the people, because I'm normally the people guarding people being careful with fascists. It is fascistic at home. There you go. Like there's a reason why Wilson is tied to the Klan, and there's a reason why liberal historiography around Wilson has gone from unwavingly positive through most of the 20th century when I was growing up to yes, like yeah, unwavingly yeah. negative now. Right, right, right. Um, because we've had our we've had our our vast uh, shifts. I mean, certainly in academia now percolating through society, which you might want to call wokeness, if you want to jump into that entire thing. But certainly, the skeleton in uh, Wilson's closet they all kind of poured out when we had these great awakenings since the '90s, and for good reason, right? The man was an unreconstructed uh, Southern segregationist, but also an intellectual and also a bourgeois internationalist. And so we need to, you know. This moment in time, this hinge point of uh, the post World War One era, gives us not just the sort of fascistic at home, national international nationalism of Wilson, but it also, of course, gives us Lenin and Lenin's working through uh, the conceptions of self determination, uh, national autonomy, 
uh, and what the proletariat should do in this particular instance. And as I re as I read as I read the, all of his writings on this, um, I think the consequences of the twentieth century are um, say a lot about maybe what the consequences are for all of Marxist theory, because Lenin is using a sort of Wilsonian vision because Marxists understand that this um, nationalist ferment, this like modernization process, this capitalization process of creating the modern nation state out of the aggregates of people in these particular areas is a progressive force in history, but that it is the job of the working class to sublate that, to overcome its bourgeois form. Well, as it turns out... I can tell out, you've been running a lot of Lenin. Yes. Do I sound like I have been? Yeah, I wanna, because, because I yeah. actually want to point back that like... Like that was not the obvious answer um, for all of the international. There's a reason why why he's why he's polemicizing. Really, this whole entire thing is polemic uh, polemicism against uh, Luxembourg, against uh, Otto Bauer, against Gorder, against all sorts of uh, you know Marxist it, interlocutors. In some ways, even against Stalin, who has a um. Stalin becomes Lenin's national guy. I mean, like, that's Stalin's role in the party other than, like, you know, um, needing illicit train robberies in in Georgia. Um, yeah, and sometimes bombings. Yeah. But Stalin's Stalin's position within the party before, you know, is is kind of as the nationalities are. And he, he gets that because he's from a contested national national area where there's... Yes, yeah. Where this is really contested. Um and Stalin, despite at times flirting with greater Russian chauvinist, was not a greater Russian chauvinist. He also suppresses it even after World War II, depending on the time period. Um, and he did not totally agree that uh, what like the, the criterion that Lenin sets out was possible. Mm. Um, but he respected it. And that actually led to... I mean, in practice, I mean, this is why, like, I could tell you're reading Lenin, but we have to talk about what he actually did. Yeah. Lenin's, Stalin used Lenin's policy to ethnically sort Central and Eastern Europe in a way that nobody, nobody had been able to do prior. And not in a good way. I mean, all, it was very ugly. And that ugliness thing got put on freeze mm -hmm. um, around World War, uh, around World War Two and then uh, Stalin also starts doing weird things like moving ethnic Koreans like to Kyrgyzstan, moving the Volga Germans to Siberia. Moving right. well, that was yeah. an exigency of war, he would say. But yeah, yeah but he I mean, he was doing all kinds of things that were exigencies of wars that are really hard to justify because they were like what like why would you assume the Koreans are on the side of the Japanese? Like of, yeah, of yeah. all I just people, the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, there's just some weird. There's some weird things that Stalin does that he justifies as, as part of war preparations. Now, I also want to point out, he didn't think he was going to be fighting Nazi Germany. He thought he was going to be fighting France mm. and, the, and the U.S. and the U.K. And then, you know, they fight the fascists later. His order of operations was reversed. I know that there's this, this kind of revisionist history amongst the MLs now to see this. Oh, they were always planning to fight Nazi Germany. And they were, but they were not planning on allying with the bourgeois powers, they thought the fascist powers were going to be next, and it created a whole, it created a whole separate set of problems um, in the international. But I, I bring it up because, like, when we read Lenin, he's very persuasive um, about sublating this and that, and we'll go into the the key points. But we also have to look at, in practice, this was a disaster both internationally and within the USSR. There's mm -hmm. no question about that. Ultimately, absolutely, and not like, just not just by the time 1991 comes, as you said, the forced transfers uh, throughout are are predicated on this conception of the nation that sees it as a normal and typical aspect of bourgeois development, and then therefore one that needs to be taken further into uh, through socialism. It's it's. I'm almost I'm almost tempted to defend Lenin as as one is always almost tempted to defend Lenin in that he steps back at certain points in this piece and says that it's actually concrete and practical questions that we have to face and it's very difficult except on a case by case basis to make like sort of abstract pronouncements about the nation um so Stalin's nationality policies 
you see are like practical exigencies. And as you were about to point out, Lenin himself had to deal with the practical exigencies before he dies in the Civil War period. Well, I mean, and, I think but yet, but yet, the dogmatization, of course, of Leninism means that towards the end of these writings, when he's talking about the number one task is to identify the oppressor nations versus the oppressed nations, right, and that this is the revolutionary strategy, becomes dogmatized to the point now that that's all really anybody talks about is talks about these things in terms of some sort of you know early twentieth century conception of imperialism, and also in terms of some sort of Marcyite campism. Now that that work like independent working class politics have been liquidated. I mean, one thing I'm gonna maybe ask you to read for the next one because I'm gonna do something on it um, in a couple of different places is read uh, Hal Draper's myth of revolutionary defeatism and the Zimmerwald left. Read that because it actually does kind of point out uh, that campism isn't really the logical implication of what Lenin did in 1917. Hmm. It is kind of the logical implications of his last writings, but even there. There's so many caveats because, for example, Lenin opposed the Second International supporting the Serbs against the British because it was an inter-imperial conflict, even though it was a national liberatory conflict. Um, he was like, "You can't. We we have to wait for like in this in this conflict, we're we're helping one empire or another. We can't do that." And so. Like I'm willing to, to to like defend Lenin in that like even when he was a national liberationist and even when he talked about oppressed nations, he actually was not willing ever to support another capitalist imperial power to liberate an oppressed nation at that time. He's like it's 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 hard, it sucks, um, basically, but there are times where you have to sit on it because mm -hmm. if you do this right now, you're helping an imperial power. Like and that is actually the more important thing. Now, the problem that you get from that is, one, by the 1950s, because of all these agreements that have been made with European nations that they're not going to be aggressors, and because of beginnings of the tensions that are lead to the Sino-Soviet split, the USSR really only sees its way to spread as supporting oppressed nations in the third world who are not... Uh, do not have heavy proletarian bases. Most of these are have been peasantified or underdeveloped, mm. um, which is interesting. And the way, one of the reasons why I point this out is um, if we go back before Lenin, I was reading Daniel de Leon's writings on the critique of the Goethe program, which predates Lenin's, which I was actually surprised. Um, this is the 1900s, right? Well, this is 1900 and 1911. Um, and then they did something in 1922. Um which both states uh, state and revolution, but but the, a lot of this stuff predates it. And what's interesting in the Delon piece is Delon's like, look, we got to support national revolutions, but we shouldn't tie up bourgeois national revolutions at all in um, in socialist revolutions. He was he's actually faulting the SP, uh, the SP day for like you incorporated these bourgeois and sub bourgeois and. He calls them petty bourgeois elements. I think in some cases he's right for their demands, but really it was like LaSalle wasn't just petty bourgeois. He was also making forays with the aristocracy to support the uh, to support the, the workers against, you know. But one of the things that, that Marx was constantly pounding on LaSalle on was LaSalle's nationalism. Mm -hmm. And and because the nationalism applied to class collaborationism, um. And Marx was not anti-national consistently. We've talked about that before. I mean, there was national liberationists in the first international, particularly in Italy. Um, but Marx, there's two problems with it from the standpoint today. Marx is not consistent on who he thinks you should back. There is a weird, almost quasi-racialist notion of historic peoples where Slavs and other yeah. people just don't count for Ingles. Yeah. These the, for Angles, especially in the early period, these small nations are destined for the dustbin of history. You right, know, they're backwards people, retrogressive cultures that will be swallowed up by the larger ones. And Marx totally signs on to that until very late in the ethnological man. Uh, notebook. Is it India that that changed his mind, or is it Russia it's, that changed his mind? It's India and Russia together. Right. But even then, he's unsure of what to do about it. We always make a big deal of the letter to Vera Zerlik, but he he suppressed that himself. Even even in regards to sitting at the Vera Zerlik, it's actually Ingalls who publishes it later. Mm. Um, so they're struggling 
with a national policy. Because on one hand, it's pretty clear that they had this, you know, these Hegelian concepts as historical peoples and all that, that they're struggling to kind of let go. On the other hand, um, they realized that like breaking up these, these late, these early modern semi-feudal empires and like Austria-Hungary and Britain are going to be good things. Um, and that they've made allegiances with na with like left nationalist in, in the first international. So they mm -hmm. have to maintain it to some degree. Um, but it, it is, I mean, it is remarkably inconsistent. And they all, but also in the beginning at the time of the communist manifesto, they have faith in the bourgeoisie to put forward, put, to push through the democratic revolution, but already within their actual living experience of the springtime of peoples in 1848, they're already disappointed in real time by the inability of the bourgeoisie to push, to push through these. Right. So what you see here, one of the interesting things though is like what you consider a nation. So we're talking about the Russia and experience and the, uh, you know, but strictly speaking, actually, from the standpoint of Lenin's policies, the United States, China, and Russia are not nations. Mm -hmm. They are empires. Like... There is no organic singular language, no organic singular section, no shared, no, no long-standing shared unity of government. Um, uh, we could argue that about China, but even the the question of language, I have a a, mo a point in my notes where I question how we're even defining language because if you there is a continuity, like a, a continuum, let's say between say like northeastern France and Occitan speakers in the south provencal speakers and say uh breton i don't know i guess it breaks down at, at Brittany, right but like there is um you could argue the same thing about ukrainian and russian right so what is it that makes ukrainians a separate language from the russians even in this period let alone today uh compared to say like the divisions in france by typifying and normalizing these large western developed nation states that that are part of like a hundred uh several hundred year processes in order to create i'm thinking specifically of france and england you lose i think interesting they lost and we lose interesting historical possibilities which is it is true that like part of this process of um creating a national market and a national polity uh is the centralization of the state and it's um creating uh a base like a legal base across a large economic zone and people zone with one language right and in that instance the austro-hungarian empire of course is extremely backwards as its economy was backward at the time but i'm not sure that compared to say western europe that in eastern europe the creation the, the turning of peoples into nations was worse than the sort of rough and sometimes chaotic and conflict-ridden um ethnic comedy that you saw between say the peoples of the of the austro-hungarian empire in the 19th century there is like an alternate way to imagine this development going that the marxist strain in particular does not take well this is this is a i, I know i'm going to make our marxist friends a little bit uncomfortable but this is because most we're basing most of our knowledge off of post-protestant reformation Western Europe. So there are clear consolidations around religion that have already consolidated these things, um, but not without bloody conflict. I mean, you know, and it's, it's also interesting, for example, Marx was pro German unification, but he was actually totally against the Prussians doing it. Right. Yeah. Um, this reactionary layer within the German, uh, you know, German nation, it's quote unquote, mm -hmm. the junker class. Right. I mean, so this is this is a this is a problem for him from moment one like how do you how do you support german unification yet oppose the actual people who are doing german unification um when you and also german unification is largely incomplete because like austria-hungary is never really like the german speakers are never really totally unified into one polity until ever. hitler <laughs> not yet and even then not for very long i mean like right. so it's you are left with this kind of problem but the, the problem that you hit on in eastern europe gets even worse 
when we look at the Islamicate world, North Africa, and the Americas. Yes. And this brings us to a way to approach this Lenin question that I wanted to talk to you a little bit. You know, you've been reading Jay Sakai's Settlers, and there's a thing that I noticed in Settlers where, he, you know, he's talking about the Settler state building projects, but he assumes all these other things are coherent nations that weren't, like, at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they did not share polities, languages, religions, or anything. Like, indigenous peoples of America with various cultures that were could not be classified as one nation by anybody's definition. Right, right. Including the, quote, civilized tribes who tried to become nations. They didn't claim to speak for all indigenous. They claimed to speak for their themselves. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, the Cherokee nation sets up its polity, sets up right. its political structure based on the Constitution of the United States. It doesn't work for them because... The United States and the settlers still needed the land, but it was an attempt. The Cherokee Nation, the Iroquois Federa- the Confederacy, the Ojibwe, like, um, but not they didn't speak for all indigenous and did not claim to. Um, one of the things I realized in reading Jay Sukai's response, and we're not even getting into his like just equation of race with nations, which he just goes back and forth with yeah. in a way that's weirdly fascistic <laughs> and he realizes it later on in life i'll give i'll give sakai that if we were okay. to believe his later when race burns class interview um because he's sort of horrified how people use some of his own work later on well when andy and i are done with settlers and we only have a couple chapters left we'll have to do the maybe we should have you on for that that'd be really interesting you'd be a good person because you've read this and you've read the secondary literature maybe to put a cap on the sakai project which it's interesting, but I'm ready to be done with it. Maybe we'll go once more into the breach with when race burns class. Yeah, I mean, it, it's but just to go into this a little bit, you point you you picked up on something early on when you were reading Sakai that's really relevant to the national question, mm. and it's something that Lenin brackets out because their models are Western European, and the wars of religion have largely and the stabilization of Bible printing. Mm. Actually, in the in uh, having to pick a dialect to print the standard version of the Bible in, has actually, in some ways, settled this for Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, it was through violent conquest and not of the bourgeoisie that enabled the bourgeoisie to take those na- to, to to like develop those nations. So basically, mm-hmm. what happened in both the French and the English case is the aristocracy versus the royalty led to the establishment of of the nation through failures of feudal polity. And that was an incredibly bloody process. Mm-hmm. And it was only in the wars of religion with the trying to establish the singular language to administer a religious polity, and then subsequently the economics uh, base to support that, which led to the consolidation of language to be assumed. So you have like, you know, we talked about this in France, you can see it in like basically the King's English, which is, you know, um, early modern uh, London, a racist like Dorset and 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 Northumbrian and all these mm-hmm. yeah, kind yeah, of, the, the kind of, we call them dialects, uh, but like we talk about Scotch, for example, not Scot, not Gaelic, not Scotch Gaelic, but Scotch as a separate Scots, language. Yeah. But I'm like, Dorset's just as hard to understand as Scotch. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. But these, these are different. These are nations, right? They're they're not just uh, linguistic nations, but historically, back in what the sixth, seventh, eighth they century, were seven they were actual, nations. right? Like, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, and so um, that process takes a hundred years, hundred and twenty. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a thousand years, a thousand two hundred, a thousand three hundred, previous to this entire rise of the capitalist mode of production and the rise of the modern nation state. Which, as you say, the struggle over that is sort of orthogonal to the discussion that we're having here about the rise of the bourgeoisie. Uh, but when and you then, come but to then Eastern, we typify and we normalize that. Right. Then we come to Eastern Europe, right? And this is where Panacook and Luxembourg actually are pretty are actually pretty profoundly smart. They're like, look, how do you justify this? Like, how do we decide what language makes up the Polish nation or the Dutch nation? It doesn't make sense. Like, the Dutch don't speak one language. Right. Like, there's Frisian, uh, there's Dutch, there's what's right. the one in uh, Belgium? I forget. Uh, Fl- Flemish or Walloon? Flemish, I'm gonna yeah. all the all the all the fucking 
Uh, we're Belgium. not even going to get into like what happens in Switzerland, right? Like where there's like five yeah. different languages that are not but, even in the same language families. Like it's like yeah, which which Lenin actually uses uh, as an example, right? Because he's like, oh, it, it's it's naive to imagine that this very special case here that uh, Luxembourg and others try to apply here is it would work in a backwards place like say Russia, right? That it's like a longer term process of like political confederation. And yet he's also anti-federalism too at the same time. It's a weird little tightrope that he tries to walk and maybe one that's appropriate for Lenin in the 20th century because he's such a dazzling intellect and a powerful political figure. But it, I feel like it breaks down, certainly when state power becomes involved. But Well, this is, this is where, like, it's interesting we talk about this, this ends in 1922. He doesn't really write on this anymore. Uh, once you know, once we get well into the end of the Civil War, and when he dies, he's you know got other concerns basically. But um, Stalin's one of them. Yeah, you already see them having to go back and forth on the national policy and redefine how much autonomy they actually mean for these places to have. No, they're still creating these national. I mean, so, some places they're literally like, okay, you don't have a language. We're going to help you build one. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. like yeah, I mean, yeah, you yeah. have a spoken language, but you don't have a history of a written language, and that's required to be a nation. So let's sit down and figure out how to write this thing. And we're going right. to consolidate and your dialects. Like, which, which is, again, like the socialist introduction through a centralized state project of a process that arises semi-organically, or at least in like an organic uh, class formation basis in places like Czechoslovakia, places like Hungary, certainly in places like uh, France and elsewhere. This is now seen as like, because this is part of the modernizing process, because this is part of the creation of economic ties of intercourse between proletarians now in the Soviet zone. This is a project that uh, is deemed to be one that the socialists themselves have to take on. Uh, and the consequences of that are incredible because if you read Lenin, and I, I've got it in the notes right here, there are very tantalizing clues and imaginaries here that Lenin doesn't pick up because he's a Marxist. But if you're somewhat critical of Leninism and you have, you're maybe a critical Marxist, you could uh, potentially manage, uh, imagine a counterfactual, which is he talks about the separation between town and country the rural areas, the backwards rural areas, and the ways in which the cities are these cosmopolitan centers where it's impossible to differentiate or to say that there's one national language because you have Jews, you have Poles, you have Ruthenians, you have Russians, you have all these people together. If, if you would imagine this scenario 110, 120 years ago, instead of through the bourgeois nation state frame and having to impose some sort of order on that chaos, and instead codified some sort of different policies between city and country, maybe something like what China does right in the Maoist period. You can imagine a different way that this nationalities project may have worked out in the USSR and one that might have potentially precluded like the national breakup or the national fragmentation of all of the constituent states of the USSR 70 years later. I mean, one, it's easy to see how this plus the exhaustion of um, of using violence to check the nomenclatura, and then when the violence is gone, the nomenclatura runs wild, you know. Uh, uh, but also, like, there's these weird ethnic tensions that emerge. Like, in, in some ways, um, Ukrainians actually get a leg up over Russians in the Soviet government, but it actually doesn't ameliorate the tensions between them, like, at right. all. Well, three... Um, in the post-Stalin period, right? Three of the premiers, it was Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and Gorbachev, right? All had Ukrainian background. Right. So so there's there's a serious problem developing there, and you're also seeing these tensions in Lithuania and Latvia. Um, but now let's just ex expand this to what, you know, we're, how we're handling this in Africa. Mm -hmm, All right. Yeah. This this actually turns the decolonial movement like this part of decolonization. I've noticed people in the West just want to avoid it. They don't want to talk about this debate. Um, where you have people who come up to people like Chinua and Chibe and look and they go like, "Well, we're not divided in nations. These nations were actually the administrative districts imposed on us by the British the and the French and the Belgians. It was, These aren't our organic... it was their sykes pico agreement, right? right? It was arbitrary lines. Uh, we aren't 
we, we don't speak the same language. We don't have historical, we don't even have a concept of nation state in this way. Right. Um, and this is a subtle point. One of the things that you see in decolonization literature, like Chinua Chibes is very subtle that I don't think people pick up is he's deliberately incorporating European ideas into his critique of European ideas. So for example, there are, there's African narrative stuff and there's, there's, um, European narrative stuff and things fall apart in the books around that. And that's on purpose, but you, you don't understand that that's not ever taught to people when they read the book in high school. Um, yeah. But one of the things that you see in his writings to explain that is he goes, look, we, we have to embrace this European technology. You know, he doesn't call it technology of the nation in their languages, because otherwise we're at an administrative disadvantage. And, you know, we have to decolonize with the master's toolbox effectively. Yeah. Like decolonization requires is not is not reversing colonization. It's moving past it and be in taking things and making it our own. But the problem that leads to and what and what Chinua like there's this background thing in Chinua Chibe that this is showing. Why is Chibe talking about this? Well, his ethnic group just had a civil war in Nigeria that was disastrous for them. They called the Balfour Wars. Mm. Like so. He's realizing that if we try to actually really, really do this national thing and like, okay, these these groups that are confessionally linguistically related, um, what are we gonna do? Well, if we try to if we try to actually handle that, Africa's just gonna break out into tons of civil wars and and, and the imperialists are gonna be able to come back because we're gonna be mm -hmm. fighting each other. Which is essentially what happens in Francophone Africa, right? Right. I mean, basically, I mean, they don't yeah. come back to to directly administer, right? But of course, uh, French finance capital, industrial capital, extractive capital, uh, commercial capital too, with commodities. Uh, you have a neo-imperialist relationship, and Frank and French itself becomes the the lingua franca of the region, exactly because of the plurality of peoples there and the plurality of languages. You need a koine, right? And right. so, like the a strict decolonize if, if i get what you're saying right like imagining it's a strict decolonization process that tries to revert to some sort of formal pluralism uh is actually counterproductive if you're trying to imagine arriving into modernity arriving into developed sort of capitalism well, uh, i what i would say that is an unsettled question actually mm. but that like as long as they're competing with nation states and national and national formations are given political legitimacy because of things like the United Nations. They don't really have a choice, even though it's not their historical mode of governments. And this gets even worse when we look at Sykes-Picot in the post-Islamicate world. Those are not historically, even though some of those cultures are very, very old, right? Mm -hmm. Like Egypt is a very, very old culture, you know, six to 10,000 years old. Mm -hmm. Um. That's never been a that's never been a nation state the way we think about it. And Muhammad Ali, who makes it a nation state, is not even Egyptian. Mm -hmm. Was he Circassian? No, no, no. He's Albanian coming into Albanian. the Ottomans. Okay, so he was a former. Um, what are they? Janissary? Was he a was former, he a former Janissary, Janissary who uses the Malamukes to like separate from the Ottomans and declare Egypt an independent kingship ruled by? descendants of albanians like, and, then a, and then attempted a modernization project right like right uh, and then, then attempted a modernization project invaded kind of, by france and england right and he kind of maintains independence but not really like you know like that's a common situation for egypt right <laughs> that's mm -hmm. what they had under rome that's what they had under the ottomans so it's it, so and yet we think of egypt as a nation going back 6,000 years. We think of China as a nation going back. China is not a nation. Going, like there's been a culture there for 6,000 years that, that has a continuity. You know, I'll give the uh, Carl's, Carl Jaws of the world that. A um, uh, civilization, if you will. There's a civilization there. That there is a continuity of civilization, but it's not been one people's. Um, it's been one culture, but they're con like there's been many governments that are often at war with each other. And one of the things that you see with modern nationalism in China from Sun Yat-sen forward is they like we have to be a multinational nation. So we have to build a multinational identity. And the original five nations are like 
uh, Western, uh, like Uyghurs, Tibetans, Han Chinese, uh, Manchus and Mongol peoples, and uh, no, Manchus and Mongolians are roughly. Um, and and we have to keep them in balance, and we have to, you know, these other, and then Mao expands that. There's like 18 recognized subnationalities, and uh, the problem that immediately develops um, is that national unification in China revol- like involves like you know people say oh well you know Han Chinese like Chinese is the oldest language. Written Chinese is super old. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mandarin is like a 200 year old language. Like it's mm-hmm. it, or like a 500 year old language. It's actually fairly modern. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's. It, it it's actually initially it's almost like Hebrew. It's not a language people actually spoke. It was a language they spoke in court because no one spoke the same languages. So it was like it was a ruling class language. It was, it was a ruling a language class of administration and ruling class language. It's almost synthetic, made of a language of administration that comes from a literary culture. It, it kind of has to be because you have in China this constant um, rolling over of various ethnic ruling classes, right? One of the one of the basic pr- principles that we take for granted is that part of the nationality conception nation in the modern world is that your ruling class should be indigenous and they should speak the same language as you in china that's traditionally been an issue because periodically you'd have people coming from the steps down whether you built a great wall or not uh and becoming a sort of layer uh like a ruling class layer on top of the vast majority of various different language speaking people so like the great um nationality struggles nation building struggles of the 17th and 18th century are in places like uh hungary right where there are these rights that the that the nation has but the nation in this instance is merely the indigenous you know thousand year ruling class of this these hungarian plains over not just strictly Hungarian-speaking people, but German-speaking people, Bosnian-speaking people, Yiddish-speaking people, Romanian-speaking people. And the call to build a nation is to, A, uh, recognize the primacy of the particular ruling class against another linguistic group outside, Mm -hmm. Um, but also what it ends up becoming, I think, against the interests of those aristocrats in, say, the, the turn of the... 18th century is a generalization of this conception of the nation as as bar- rights and responsibilities of a nobility to becoming rights and responsibility of the general citizen it's right. the universalization of like an aristocratic ruling class's rights to the general population through of course as we know constitutional processes bourgeois revolutionary processes it's difficult outside of a place like hungary even to see the same sort of processes uh, at work when the imposition is not indigenous, when it's actually Western, let's say. But I mean, and this this leads us to the problem. Like our models for all this are Western Europe. And and Marx is really willing to admit later on in his life, yes, we modeled this on Western Europe. And that's, you know, at first he's like, this will be, you know, this wave of history. Later on, he's like, well, maybe other people can use what we did to like bypass certain things. And, uh, but maybe it's not, maybe it's not ideal if everybody goes through it. I mean, but it's interesting what like doctrinaire Marxist thought, you know, um, and like the great debate between like the SLP and the Bolsheviks would be, should your national polit, should your national revolution be overseen by a socialist who, who prematurely take power according Mm. to and so, like, Daniel theory, De Leon, yeah. weirdly, the same side of, like, Plakhanov. He's just like, no, the national revolution has to happen first. That's good. You know, but they're not us. And we're going to have to fight them eventually. And if we confuse that, it's going to confuse everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, um, now, what does that have to do with nations? Well, even he thought, like, Daniel De Leon thought, like, well, we have to deal with nations as a way that you, like, that is the form of bourgeois politics. And... And so we like Germany needs a bourgeois revolution. It needs to like, and he says uh, in his polemical with this, they probably wouldn't even get what France got. They're probably going to get what England gets. But like, at least if that happens, and there's a national consolidation and a bourgeois revolution, then it's then like the socialists have something to pick up from. And yes, they're going to have to fight the bourgeoisie. But the bourgeoisie's noble purpose would have been like 
overseen. What Lenin does is combine those two things and says, like, the socialists have to oversee this. They don't actually reject that. What they're saying is, like, well, uh, in these backwards countries like where we live, and and, and he does have a very teleological, like, he accepts, like, a German teleological view. Like, he's like, okay, like, um, the Slavs are unhistoric, but we can make them historic, basically. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so, so what are we going to do? We have to do this. We have to oversee this national development project, um, which put, which in some ways, like I'm not a, ultimately a Plakhanov defender, but it does seem like you have the same problem that we see in like Hilferding, but in a different way. So mm. what, what's the critique of Hilferding? Well, Hilferding puts the socialists in charge of overseeing a bourgeois economy and having to manage that. So they have to take the fall for it. And it enables the, it enables like, um, the petit bourgeois, the lumpen, the um, the the non the working poor who are not industrial proletariat, um, which the Marxists don't really know what to do with yet. Actually, mm. I mean, even Marx is sort of like going back and forth from whether or not he thinks they're proles. Um, are you talking about like ruined uh, guilds people? No, I mean like you have uh, like shopkeepers or shopkeep like. Shopkeepers, day laborers, um, uh, service sector workers. I mean, that Marx is very unclear whether or not they count as proletariat or semi lump, and he goes back and forth in his letters. Mm. Um, uh, like remnants of the peasantry and things like sharecropping are, you know, like they aren't really peasants anymore, but they're, you know, um, the this whole, uh, agrarian labor in general actually mm -hmm. like this is a whole category that like socialist in theory they accept those people as proles or at least some of them right but in practice they have no way to organize them like it doesn't yeah, fit the yeah. industrial model and this this is the base of fascism it is like it, it, it um at least in germany germany is also weird i mean like because the base of fascism in Italy is a little different, but mm. the, it is this sense in which, like, there are all these other classes that aren't in the main conflict that that you can appeal to. Marxist theory that they were just going to go away. Now we could do a whole series on the lumpen. They don't. That's that's one of the problems. Is like, uh oh, we we might end up with another series soon. We won't yeah. even number at this time. Um, uh, you know, the, the lumpen. The, the lumpen don't go away because they're supposed to. They're supposed to just kind of like they're the refuge of the old order, right? They're not supposed mm -hmm. to. That's Marx's initial explanation for them. It's not just that they're a criminal. It's like they're the leftover. But as even Endnotes points out, that's not entirely true. Um, yeah, and, no, yeah. And they and if it was true, it doesn't make any sense because they definitely all survived like other like they all survived the peasantry. Look, we um, still have we still have organ grinders today. You know, they're just on. Uh, on the street corner in a, in a different fashion. Uh, well, it was funny. I was actually, when I, he, Marx was complaining about organ grinders and knife sharpeners. And I actually like <laughs> encountered them literally in Cairo. And I was like, Oh, there they are. <laughs> like <laughs> They're still there. I, I was like, okay. Good knife, knife sharpener, man. Honestly, I've been looking for one for a while. Um, So, you know, it's just like, well, there, yeah, there's this, like this conception that things are going to simplify and things don't actually simplify. They don't actually simplify. Just like there's, in a, there's this conception in De Leon and in Marx that like the industrial proletariat are going to become the majority and Bernstein's right. They don't like, yeah, and the nation, uh, we've talked about that when we discussed uh, EndNotes, but like mm -hmm. the nation too was supposed to simplify things. A, it was supposed to create a unitary centralized um, governmental apparatus that could then be captured. Uh, it was supposed to like sweep away the, the remnants of these like non-historic peoples if you're early Marx and Engels, or it was meant to like um, integrate these um, oppressed nations into larger oppressor nations in such a way that like you could um yeah create like a, a minority rights um situation in these particular nations and it didn't really shake out that way like the nation didn't actually simplify the class struggle the creation of a democratic republican state did not actually make to directly quote uh lenin uh the class struggle clearer uh freer uh and more legible in fact, especially in the post-Second World War period, it makes the class struggle far more illegible because of the various different mechanisms that the nation state was 
forced to employ in order to create the class compromise that we still kind of live through today. So, I mean, one of the interesting things that is pointed out by um, Harun Yamez, uh, Yamez, who I think I mentioned, he's been a guest on my show, but I think I mentioned uh, his work in the last time. If I didn't, you should check out his book, National Identities and Soviet Historiography. Mm. But one of the things he said is like, the faith of Lenin and Stalin is that like internationalism would actually kill nationalism, but you couldn't have internationalism without nationalism. So like, this was the thing that was going to consolidate but the international because it held the contradiction of the national and the global you know it uh, as opposed to the contradiction between the cosmopolitan and the national and we'll get that there is a separate these are separate ideas hmm. uh, and like when people complain about globalism they're deliberately kind of conflating them maybe that's but, what i was nodding to earlier when i was talking about town and country i'm interested in that when we get to it so there's this real attempt to do this um this sort of like sublation of um of we're gonna build the international and then that's gonna you know help us the problem and bordega of all people and i don't always love bordega bordega posts this out very early on to stalin we have to subordinate the the uh basically you have to subordinate all the parties outside of the ussr to the USSR in a way that will limit the growth of communism, so that so that the so that the the irony is is like even though we all know that Bukharin and Stalin don't really believe in socialism in one nation, it's a temporary holding pattern, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is not something that they argue is going to be the ultimate form. And people who try to argue it today, including people who are socialist republicanisms, are actually misunderstanding even what Thawne's thought. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a way in which, like, like Borg is saying, because you're doing that, you're actually sacrificing our ability to have revolutions elsewhere. Thus, you're condemning both sides. You're the death knell of the revolution mm. because we can't have revolutions elsewhere because we're not thinking about global communism. We're just trying to keep Russia uh, and the USSR afloat yeah. uh, for geopolitical reasons, of which you're having to act at all times. And it's often the somewhat parochial. But if we if we don't do that, then it looks like the revolution fails and we all look bad. You put us in a situation mm -hmm. where like it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's and while Bordega does not oppose national liberation, but he's like the international has to be truly international and it has to be run by the party and the national parties basically all have to be equal or we don't have anything mm -hmm. like um what actually ends up happening in Yelena's documents pretty well is, you know, Soviet policy creates nationalisms and it also creates national resentment, both from Russians, because there are times where they're trying to suppress Russian, greater Russian chauvinism. Um, even again, people think, oh, well, World War II, Stalin gave up on that. It's not consistent like that. He goes back and forth. Yeah, yeah. These are practical um, innovations for the moment. Yeah. But. But also in doing so and pivoting back and forth, it really doesn't get consistent until the 50s. Like um, Khrushchev, who is one of the Soviet leaders I have a, a, a small soft spot for, is still a problem in the sense that he actually does embrace greater Russian chauvinism in some mm. way. Mm -hmm. um, so, much of, so much of Lenin is about the right to secede. Right. It automatically made me think of Hungary and Czechoslovakia for some reason. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's interesting because even early on, they see, oh, we promised them this ability to succeed, but we can't actually allow it because they might actually do it. Right. Right. That's a problem very early on. Even when um, it's not a not a true succession, right? Because you had um, what's, what we in the West call liberalizing reforms in both of these revolutions that were kind of products of workers' councils. And I, I'm not, I don't know enough about these two, the Prague Spring or the Hungarian Uprising, to know um how much of like like you're liberalizing in some sense and not in another because we also remember that like russia and china liberalize in so much that they embrace markets but not like but right, not right, right. like um well tito in a sense secedes right he's able yeah. to have a, enough of a power base that he can become like a third part of the third world but that is never like the soviets are never happy about that no not like, at all no um like so this is this is part of the thing. Lenin's big on succession. He's big on nominal autonomy, but 
he doesn't have to deal with people actually, you know, doing it. Stalin does, and that leads to a problem. So I think you have two problems immediately. You have, like, well, we promised you you could have national autonomy and self-determination, but also, like, fuck you. Mm-hmm. And if you, like, you can, on, yeah. but only in terms that are good for us because we don't want you to destroy our, our larger world socialist project, which, you know, I... I I say that cynically, but like I also see kind of where they're coming from. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's understandable, but it's it is a weird again needle threading operation to throw up nationalism as this like uh, historically normalized process that we as socialists need to do in a proletarian way, while at the same time trying to fight off these national tendencies, which we know they knew and we know today lead to so much fragmentation and war uh, in the nineteenth and twentieth century. I mean, could you think about, you know, the irony of the Yugoslav situation is that the Yugoslav also is a multi-ethnic state that's going to immediately disintegrate as soon as Tito's gone. Mm-hmm. Or, like the Yugoslav, you know, uh, Soviet, um, Yugoslav socialist experiments over. Well, we have back to like this whole, sect- you know, sectarian slash um, national tension that w- that came out of the end of these empires that have been put on pause by this other nation building project immediately comes back like and this and this all points to another one one of the huge issues of actually existing socialism too which is like this bonapartist tendency that we also tend to normalize when we talk about the ussr or when we talk about yugoslavia we're talking about stalin or we're talking about tito and it's not to say that there wasn't like some sort of civil society and there wasn't uh various different ways of like political management uh even even popular political management of some structures within it but already when it's so personalized you're talking about a defeat for a particular conception of socialism that we shouldn't forget one that's more broad-based one that's maybe based on workers control maybe democratically a, a deeper democracy maybe than what the dictatorship of the proletariat or the party ended up being maybe this is a good time to go into the bonus section if you're yeah. an a listener yeah, let's go, let's go into the bonus section here, DeMarc. All right. Um, let's ask ourselves a question, though. I mean, the, here's a here's the glaring question in the room. Was Stalin wrong from the standpoint of Lenin's national policy to support Israel? <laughs> All this and more on the other side of the paywall. Become a subscriber at patreon.com slash varnvlog and or patreon.com slash the antifada to get some topical takes on nationalism because that's what this is all about right is we're trying to get our heads around the theoretical stuff and the historical stuff to again try to figure out how this applies to today when nationalism is uh, obviously still a huge force so we'll see you all on the other side